Romans 6, as Paul continues to reveal God's grace. A little Calvary history while you're turning there. A little Calvary history. I think most of you know that Calvary Wichita is part of a family of churches, more than, more than 2,000 some worldwide at this point. Our tribe was birthed during the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. For the last 50 years, people have been calling it the Jesus movement. Increasingly, church historians are beginning to refer to it as a fourth great awakening in North America, a fourth continental revival. The first, if you've heard the term Great Awakening, you've probably heard it associated with the first Great Awakening in the mid-1700s, the time of Whitfield, the time of Jonathan Edwards. The second Great Awakening in the early 1800s, pastors like Henry Ward Beecher, Charles Finney, circuit pastors, bringing the gospel to an expanding nation. Third Great Awakening, the turn of the century, here in North America and around the world, Wales, the United Kingdom, here in the U.S., the Azusa Street Revival was part of that in Los Angeles. And the fourth great awakening, the Jesus movement of the late 60s and 70s. People like John Higgins and the Shiloh Revival, Lonnie Frisbee, who started off in Haight-Asbury and came down to Southern California, Pastor Chuck, who had been raised and trained as a four-square pastor broke with his denomination in 1965, didn't go away mad, just didn't want to move again, fundamentally, and took the pulpit at a small, 25 people small church called, uh, called Calvary Chapel. Fast forward a few years, by 1971, 2,000 people were regularly attending church at Calvary. And not long afterwards, some of the men that Pastor Chuck had been discipling began to go out and plant Calvary chapels of their own. People like Greg Laurie, Jeff Johnson, Mike McIntosh, Skip Heitzig, Joe Crowley in Ark City, and a man by the name of Raul Reese. 1971, as Calvary was really hitting its stride, as the Jesus movement was picking up steam, Raul was a troubled Vietnam veteran was an angry man when he went to war, was angrier still when he came back, deeply troubled, deeply paranoid, convinced that his wife Sharon was going to take his kids and leave him, which may or may not have been true, but he was lying in wait in the darkness of their apartment with a rifle waiting to kill his family, and then his plan was to shoot it out with the police, suicide by cop. Instead, he starts watching something that was on TV, and he doesn't even remember. He'll tell you he has no memory of turning on the TV. But there's Pastor Chuck being interviewed. The interviewer talking about the hippies, the teens, who are being delivered from sex and drugs and emptiness and brokenness and violence. And there in that dark apartment, Rawl dropped to his knees and gave his life to Jesus. Four years later, 1975, he's ordained, plants a church in West Covina, another town in Southern California, begins teaching the word, begins discipling another generation of disciples and servants and pastors, one of whom was a man named Don Duncan, who in 1981 moved to Wichita, having never been here before, to pioneer this church. Another man that Pastor Rawl discipled was a man, a college dropout by the name of Lloyd Pulley. In 1984, Lloyd moved from Southern California to New Jersey, where he'd never been to plant a church, the church that I was discipled in and trained up in. None of which has anything to do with Romans. <laughs> but every week as we turn there, I think about Pastor Rawl because Romans is his favorite book. And this week especially, I can't stop thinking of Pastor Rawl because the passage that we're in the, my favorite Rawls saying ever. Rawls is, is a man famous for his, his lines. I'm not a particularly quotable pastor. I'm not one of these Instagram pastors where every Sunday there's just something quotable that you, you can throw up there. That's just not me. Rawls is eminently quotable. But the very best thing Rawls ever said resonates with our passage this morning. It wasn't, he wasn't actually teaching in Romans 6 when he said it. He was in Romans chapter 12. It was at a conference that I was attending. 
And he's in Romans 12, and it's familiar verses. He's talking about, don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Really, be ye being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Familiar verse. And I'm wondering what Pastor Rawl is going to do with this. He reads it. He looks up from his Bible, and he said, so what Paul is saying when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, what Paul is saying is, don't do that. And whatever came to your mind when I said don't do that, that is the that that you should not do. I've got allergies, so I can't do my raw limitation this morning. You'll, you'll, if, if you know his accent, you'll have to fill it in in your mind. Don't do that. And whatever came to your mind when I said don't do that, that is the that that you should not do. Praise the Lord. Raul always punctuates his, his sermons with praise the Lord. That is the that that you should not do. As we turn to Romans 6 this morning, we all have a that, don't we? A habit, a character trait, a secret sin, a, maybe a not-so-secret sin, but a weakness, a sin of choice, something that we go to, a non-Jesus coping mechanism that draws us back time and time again. Yours might be reined in at the moment. Yours might be well under control. Yours might be raging out of control. I don't know. But either way, we all have a that. When Pastor Rawl said, don't do that, we knew what he was talking about. So what do we do with that? Don't do that, says Pastor Rawl. Pastor Paul agrees. Starting in verse 11, where we left off last week, he says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. If you were with us last week or if you read and, and caught up, you know Paul has just finished debunking the idea that sin is in any way good, which doesn't sound like the kind of thing Paul would actually have to explain but he knows sooner or later, someone is going to take a run at making the argument, if grace is good, because grace glorifies God, then sin is good, because that's what requires grace. If grace is good, then sin is good, so that if we sin, God gives grace, he gets glory, so let's sin. As we pick up in verse 11, Paul has just got done saying, no, heaven forbid, the way we're forgiven is to die with Christ. When we do, we should, we do die to our sin so that we can live with Christ freed from our sin. Sin. Not just sins, sin. That's important. At the cross, Jesus died for the sins we committed, the deeds that we did, but he also died for the sin nature that was at the root of those sins, that gave birth to those deeds. Born again means we no longer have to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. No longer have to serve sin. Get to serve God. The way we were supposed to, with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. You don't have to sin anymore, Paul says, so don't. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, verse 12, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members, hands, fingers, toes, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Don't let your body be a tool for sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, serving him, not serving yourself, not serving the enemy. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Paul just uses a lot of words to say, don't do that. And whatever comes to mind... That is the that you don't need to do anymore. You don't have to. Not like that's a new idea, right? You spend any time in church, you've heard that. Spend any time at all reading the Bible, you've read that. Count yourself dead to sin. Don't offer any part of yourself as an instrument of sin. Don't satisfy the desires of the flesh. Put to death what belongs to your sin nature. Flee immorality, flee idolatry. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. See to, see to it that none of you has a sinful heart. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Repent. 
again and again and again. There's this exhortation from Scripture. Why? Because we can. In Christ, we have the power we didn't have before the cross. In Christ, we have the power we lacked before we gave our lives to him. We have the power to turn from what's wrong and embrace what's right. And we need to. If we don't, first of all, if we don't, it's the height of ingratitude, right? Hey, thanks for the salvation, God. Now I'm going to go back to sinning as usual. But I'm glad it doesn't count anymore. Okay, that's the height of ingratitude to begin with. But besides that, if that weren't enough, and it should be, besides that, if we don't embrace what is right, our families get hurt. Our friends get hurt. Our fellowship with God suffers. Our witness to others is damaged. Our discernment is clouded. Our ministry, whatever it is, whatever God has left us on this earth to do, is limited or lost. Sin limits our fellowship with God, our service for God. The greatest, the greatest limitation on our service to God, we get confused about this, it's not lack of time. We're 21st century Americans. We don't think we have time for anything. That's not the greatest limitation on our ministry. And it's not ability, and it's not energy, and it's not a lack of gifting or funding. It's sinning. Not somebody else's, ours. We can't serve God and others well if we're busy defying God and prioritizing ourselves. Prioritizing our that over them. And funny thing is, as new believers, that made perfect sense to us, didn't it? As new believers, think, think back to when you were first saved, when you were first serving. Everything was about God, wasn't it? The universe really was binary. If, if, if it had to do with God, you ran toward it. If it didn't have to do with God, you ran away from it. It was simple. And it wasn't easy, but, but it also, nothing was too hard either. No sacrifice was too great in those days because he saved us. And that thought was at the forefront of your mind all the time. Jesus saved us when he didn't have to. He rescued us. The God of the universe put on flesh and died for us. Of course I'm going to live for him. Whatever he asks, of course I'm going to do for him. Whatever it takes. Nothing is too great for him after what he did. But then what happens? Compromise happens. Complacency sets in. We see the corners that other people are cutting, compromises that they're making. We realize the very real cost of serving. Meanwhile, the flesh, the world over here, they keep beckoning. We're still here. And we start negotiating, don't we? Maybe let's not go overboard on this Jesus thing. Maybe I don't have to get rid of everything. Maybe I don't have to get rid of that. Maybe I have room in my life for this. I mean, he, he's got a this, she's got a that. Those guys over there, they're all about that. And they go to church. Maybe it's not a big deal. Just a little that. I heard somebody compare the typical 21st century Christian, American, evangelical life in the United States to flying an airplane. And I thought, okay, Wichita, air capital of the world, we can work with this. <laughs> plane takes a lot of energy, I'm told, to get off the ground. Going down the runway, tremendous amount of thrust to get a tube of metal off the ground and into the air. So too does the Christian life begin with a lot of energy. Learn, grow, repent. Learn some more. Oh, more stuff to repent of. Keep moving, keep growing, keep repenting. But then we're off the ground. And once we actually are off the ground, we quickly level off to a comfortable cruising altitude, don't we? And pull back on the throttle. Because it doesn't take as much energy to stay aloft as it does to get aloft. 
And so we cruise, less energy, less learning, less repentance, less growth, still moving, don't want to crash, but as long as we don't crash, we're still moving. And eventually, gently set down into a comfortable retirement, coast on into looking forward to being with Jesus. Except that's not supposed to be our flight plan. That's not the flight plan God filed for us. It's not, not an up, over, down. The flight plan that God filed for us, that he intends for us, is up and up and up and up, higher and higher, faster, stronger, purer, closer to him, right? Curse to me that an even better metaphor might be bike riding. Riding a bike, same idea. Takes a lot of energy to get going, right? If you're my age, that takes a lot of energy just to get that leg over the top. <laughs> and then it's pump, 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 pedal, pedal, pedal. There's a lot of effort in getting up to enough speed that you can balance and not fall off. But then you get to coast, same idea, right? Until you hit a hill or a pothole, and then it's pedal, pedal, pedal some more. And then it's coast. Another hill, pedal, pedal, pedal. On our coast. Again, is that God's design? Not really. By not really, I mean not at all. His design, his plan, his, his, his bike route for us is steady, consistent effort, building strength, building endurance. So when we get to a hill, not a thing. That's not always how we do it, though, is it? Not always our experience. A lot of times we're riding along the bike trail and we're barely staying upright. We're working really hard. We have trouble keeping up speed. Difficulty maintaining balance. Why? Because usually we're hauling along a big old bag of that. I remember riding my bike with my little brother on the handlebars when I was a kid. I only did it a few times because I realized that he was going to kill me. I was the one, it was my bike, I was on the seat, I was pedaling, he was in control. All he had to do was shift his weight, stick a leg out, put an arm up, we were going to crash and there wouldn't be anything I could do about it. Because I was dragging something along the bike wasn't designed to handle. Just like you and I aren't designed, we're not engineered to drag along a big old bag of sin in our life. There's no place for it in our life, not anymore. So what do we do? Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't do that, Paul says. Get rid of that. Leave it behind. Dump it on the side of the road. Great, Paul. I'm on it. Except no, wait, if it were that easy, I would already be doing it. Paul, it's not that easy. He didn't say it was easy. He said it was important. He said it was imperative. If we want to worship the way that God has created us to worship, if we want to serve the way that God has anointed us to serve, if we want to be the people that Jesus died to allow us to be, we've got to toss the sin overboard. So what do we do? Flip over to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, story of Achan. Actually referenced the story last week with no intention of going here this week, but it's just where the Lord led me. Joshua chapter 7, the children of Israel, let's kind of get some context, children of Israel finally entering the land. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness, a generation has died off, Moses has been left behind, Joshua and Caleb leaving, leading the next generation into the land. God tells them it's going to be a battle. Everywhere you want to go, you're going to have to fight your way in, but I'll fight the battle for you on one condition, God says, you got to do what I say. You have to obey me. Works great in Jericho. Joshua and the troops follow God's battle plan. The walls come down. Victory for everybody. Celebration. Next battle goes horribly. It goes as badly as Jericho went well. Israel gets routed at Ai. Why? What was different? What changed? Joshua asks God, what happened? God says, you disobeyed. How did we disobey, Lord? You looted. That was on the don't do list. Don't take spoil. 
Don't rob the people that you're conquering. Don't loot. Joshua investigates, narrows his list of suspects down to one. It's Achan. In chapter, nine, uh, chapter 7, verse 19, Joshua says to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Don't hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, verse 20, and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them, and there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. Dramatic example of sin. Textbook example. And as we said last week, God makes a dramatic example of Achan in punishing him, in judging him. God does this. Each new chapter of human history, each new season of God dealing with people, we see an episode like this, where God deals with someone, judges someone dramatically to remind us while he is, yes, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, he is still holy and righteous and just. And God's hope with episodes like Achan with Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, his hope is that we would learn from these examples so that he can deal with us the way that he would prefer to on the basis of his mercy and not according to his justice. So what do we learn from Achan? Achan teaches us how to sin. Someone like us, someone who knows better, who still gets tripped up by the that that he knows he should not do. Achan knew not to loot. He knew not to do that. He knew that was the that that he should not do, and he still did it. What do we learn from Achan? We learn to sin. Good, Patrick. This is awesome. Thing is, I already know how to sin. I'm thinking about turning pro. I'm so good at it. I don't need to learn how to sin. I'm already better at it than I want to be. Me too. But here's the thing. If we can reverse engineer Aiken's story and figure out what he did wrong, we might be able to figure out what to do right. Might be able to figure out how not to. How to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And obviously, I think that there's a game plan here. I think in the short passage we just read, there are four things worth paying attention to. Look again, verses 19 to 21. If you want to master a passage of Scripture, pay attention to what? Pay attention to the verbs. What do the verbs tell us? What did Achan do? Verse 20, he says, I sinned. We know, Achan, that's great. I mean, it's not great, but it happened. What got you there? Break it down for us, Achan. And in the remainder of the passage, he says, I did four things. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. How do we interrupt our sin cycle? How do we put a circuit breaker between our heart and our hand so we don't, verse 13, present our members as instruments of righteousness to sin? We make a stand in these four places. We counterattack at these four verbs. We'll take them one at a time. Achan, first one, Achan saw. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the eyes, remember? He says the eyes are the lamp of the body. Eyes are good, whole body is good. Eyes are bad, whole body filled with darkness. What we look at matters. What did Achan look at? Gold, silver, fine clothing. That was the beginning of the end for him. The start of his downhill slide began with a look. Looting turned out to be his that. But it started with a look. Where does your that start? Where should your eyes not be? Your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands. Want to get serious about sin? It starts with putting the temptation that you know out of reach. If your thing is porn, lock it down. If your thing is laziness and stewardship of time, put the time-wasting things out of reach. The number of conversations I have with people, yeah, I just wasted two hours just scrolling on my phone and, and, and now I didn't get to sleep. Okay, don't go to bed with your phone. Leave it in another room. If your thing is gossip, don't sit with those people. If your thing is mood-altering shopping, don't bring the catalogs into your house. Take them out of the mailbox, throw them in the trash. If your thing is substances, don't go where they are. If your thing is anger, every time I watch the news, I just get so angry. Okay, if it hurts when you do that, don't do that. I'm being a little flip, but at the same time, 
I'm talking about some radical change. Because if something south of radical was going to work, it would have worked already. Do what you always did, get what you always got. Want something different, do something different. If you've been at Calvary any length of time, you've heard me use this example. My greatest weakness, anybody? Chocolate chip cookies. They're my kryptonite. If I don't want to eat cookies, I need to not go into the kitchen. It's as simple as that. I see the cookies, I'm going to lose. Now I lie to myself. I'm going to get some veggies. Are there any veggies in the kitchen, Patrick? I don't know. I'm going to go look around. Maybe there are. If I look around, I'm going to lose. What am I in the mood for? But if, if, if I ask what, I, what do I feel like, I put the dumbest part of my brain in charge of my decision-making. What's here that I might enjoy? Game over. I lost. No, the only way to win is not to play. Now, that means I can't play should games. I should be strong. I'm a pastor. I should have more willpower. I should be able to walk by a cookie and not have it jump off the plate into my hand. And, and sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm not. Only way to be sure, don't go into the kitchen. Don't go close enough to the kitchen. They're in there. I can smell them. Put the cookies on a reach of my hands, of my eyes, of my nose. All of the senses. And, and I know me. I'll try to find excuses. Hector looked a little, little peaked up there leading worship. I'm going to get Hector a cookie to strengthen him for closing worship. I don't think Ann got onto the booth between services. She needs a little pick-me-up to get her through the morning. I'm going to take some cookies home for Michaela. Wait, Patrick, isn't she away at school? Yes. Where's school? Four hours away. Is she planning to come home? She might. And what kind of dad am I if I don't have a snack for her? I lie. I don't lie to you. I lie to me. Chocolate chip cookies exist for exactly one person, uh, purpose, to be eaten. Person, me, yeah. See? Thank you, Dr. Freud. <laughs> In my hands, the cookies will fulfill their purpose. The point by... The point is not for all of you to become the cookie police. Every time I use the illustration, everyone seizes on the whole cookie part, and for the next three months, every time I pick up a snack, oh, gotcha! <laughs> I'm watching you, Pastor. God's watching you, Pastor. It's not about the cookies, okay? The cookies are a placeholder for sin. The question is, what is your Sin. What are your cookies? What are your that's? And what's the point of no return for your that, for your sin of choice? Where do you need to put a, a wall up so your eyes, your ears, your hands don't end up where they shouldn't be? Dragging you down. True story. I was living in Minneapolis when I got saved, and one of the first things, this will sound obvious, one of the first things that I realized when I got saved is I needed to stop going to bars, because that's where the sin was. Okay, don't go to bars, except it wasn't that easy, because all around my house, my apartment, I, I had ads and flyers and papers, drink specials, ladies' night, three for one. I had stuff that was screaming to me about bars and the things that were happening in bars and what I could do in bars. So I could decide I'm not going to go, but then I'd sit, sit at home surrounded by things that reminded me of bars. And even if I didn't go, which I didn't, Satan would still win the evening because I'd be sitting there white-knuckled. I'm not going to the bar, but I'm not doing anything else either. <laughs> I'm just all I can take to break even. That doesn't glorify God. Okay, so Patrick, don't look at the ads. But if I just brought home the weekly paper, I know the ads are in there. I'd bring it home because, hey, I want to read about the sports. I want to follow the Vikings. Don't follow the Vikings. <laughs> I, I want to I see what my, you know, what my favorite bands are up to in town. It would just sit there mocking me. Because I know the ads for the bars are in there. And the coupons for the drink specials. 
I had to decide not to bring home the weekly paper. But what about the sports? Watch ESPN, dummy. What about your friend's band? Ask him. He knows. I need, but, but see, the thing is, I needed to not put eyes on the paper. Eventually, what I figured out, I needed to get my morning orange juice and bagel from a different store so that I didn't look at the paper, which wasn't sin, but it was the trigger, it was the gateway, it was the thing leading to the thing that led to the thing. What is that for you? What is your point of no return? What do you need to get out of reach that maybe isn't sin, but leads to sin? And, 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 and be honest with yourself. Not, what do I wish it was? What should it be? What does it seem to be for other people? Well, it works for... No, what is it for you? What will it take for you to not go there? That's a real question that if you don't know now, you should sit with and find an answer to. We're going to keep going. Number two, second verb, Achan coveted. This one is actually more important than the whole looking and seeing thing. Because we live in a sin-saturated society. Wherever we go, there's 360 degrees of sin all around us, and we still have a sin nature. Even if we manage to wall ourselves off from temptation, we're still capable of generating our own from within our own wicked heart. Our souls are saved. Our bodies are corrupt. We're hardwired to sin. So wherever we go, there we are. Illustration. Not a shock to anyone. Lots of men, even in the church, struggle with pornography. Increasing number of women talking to my wife about pornography, by the way. A lot of times the conversation starts with, can you help me lock down my phone? Yes, glad to. And by the way, just having an app on the phone doesn't cut it anymore. The way that phones are evolving and the way that system software is changing, there are some things that you have to do to actually let the app do its job and gatekeep your phone for you. Glad to help you with that if that's you. But here's my point. The battle doesn't stop there. Any phone with any browser can access something scintillating. Okay, well, I'll get a flip phone. Or, actually, option you should know about is something called a wise phone. You can't install apps and it doesn't have a browser. You can message, you can text, you can, you, you can use it as a phone. Revolutionary concept. Um, it's got navigation, you can download photos and music, but that's about it. No, no apps and no browser. But, okay, but... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of my phone, still have TV. Get rid of, t you know, get rid of cable, still have basic. Get rid of all the TV, still have magazines. The, the point is you can keep going. We live in a sin-saturated society, and we still have a sin nature. You can end up blindfolded in your basement, sitting on your barca lounger. Your mind is capable of generating all kinds of images, either remembering or imagining all kinds of sin. So locking down your phone, your pad, your game console, that's good. You should. I hope you do. I'm glad to help you. Put a wall between, whatever, you know, between you and whatever your gateway is to your that. But it's not enough. It's not enough because wherever you go, there you are, coveting. If you don't take steps to prevent it. How, how, do, you, how do you keep a heart from coveting? What's the opposite of coveting? satisfying. Back to chocolate chip cookies, I can put up all kinds of fences and blockades and guards in front of the kitchen, but then Christmas is going to come around and people are going to walk in the front door with cookies. Cookies everywhere. How to cope? Don't let myself get hungry. Fill up on healthy things, green things. Rob's food. <laughs> Rob's food is what my food eats. <laughs> But the point is to not walk around craving so when the cookies show themselves, I'm already full. It's the same principle, don't shop hungry, right? Achan, in Joshua 7, went into the battle, how? Hungry. Dissatisfied. Had to be. Had, had to already be convinced that God was shortchanging him before he picked up a sword. Had to already be convinced that his life would be better if he had a certain few things that God hadn't seen fit to provide for him. Achan believed he deserved more. What's the antidote for that? Taking time, and it takes time, 
to remember God every day. Not, not just that God is, but who God is and who we are in him. Taking time to remember how faithful he is, how faithful he has been, how faithful he will be, and how safe and how peaceful and how joyful we are when we're in his will, regardless of circumstances, and how quickly that changes when we step outside of his plan. How dangerous we are to ourselves and others when we color outside of the lines. Our daily devotional time, and it, and it needs to be daily, because we never, never wake up in the Spirit, right? Our daily devotional time should not be, I'm going to read this ABC chapters in Scripture, and then I'm going to pray XYZ people. No, our, our, our devotional time, quiet time, Jesus time, should be about deciding if we're going to live that day, walk that day in the flesh or in the Spirit. Am I going to live today in the heart that I was born with or the heart that Jesus gave me, the heart that Jesus lives in? And I need to let my time with God and worship and the Word help me choose and revive me and strengthen me and satisfy me. So when temptation comes, because it will, when the world or our own flesh tries to pull us away, we're not sitting ducks. We're not easy targets. Talking to somebody this week, he said, I feel like, like, like my sin is always one step away. Okay, the remedy for that is to walk away, to walk closer to God so that it has a harder pull because <laughs> you're already rooted and grounded in him. It, if, you're, if you're like me, by the way, daily devotion has become kind of a misnomer. I talked about this a little while ago. I can't make it all day on morning devotional time. I just can't. I might start off walking with the Spirit. If, if, if I only spend time with Jesus in the morning, I will end up, by evening, in the flesh. Ask my wife. I've got to top off my tank periodically through the day. Paul, Paul says, I pray without ceasing. I wish that were me. I'm not that spiritual, but, but I've realized, just like we pause during the day to satisfy our physical bodies, we need to pause during the day to satisfy our soul, to pray, to worship, to fellowship with God. One of the things I try to do, I try to stop and ask God for a fresh filling of His Spirit. I try to stop and ask for a mini-revival at transitions, when I go from one room to another from inside to outside, from the parking lot to the car, from a car to the building. When I make a transition from one space to another, God, you know what's waiting for me in this next space. And sometimes it's just time. Sometimes I'm staying in one place, but I'm going from one meeting to another meeting, one activity to another activity. God, you know what the next hour holds. Would you revive me? Would you fill me afresh? Would you anoint me for, for what you know I need? Being satisfied in God. The longer I'm walking with God, the more I'm convinced. We spend, we spend a lot of attention on sinning less. Really, if we love God more, sinning less takes care of itself. Remedy to looking, don't put your eyes where your eyes shouldn't be. Remedy to coveting, be being satisfied in Jesus. Sometimes, though, despite our best efforts, we get ambushed. World is chaotic. Satan's out there prowling, stalking, ready to jump us the moment we show weakness. I've been propositioned for sex at church. Not this church, another church, but it happened. I've been offered drugs at a Christian concert. I've had the opportunity to steal $10,000, drop in my lap, and I knew I wouldn't get caught. I had somebody, I had somebody call me once and say, hey, somebody, somebody's hurt your church. Just say the word and I'll hurt them. <laughs> this stuff happens. Sometimes, despite our best efforts to walk with God, our best efforts to be prayed up and to be walking in the Spirit and keep our eyes and hands and ears on of places they shouldn't be, temptation, crazy temptation, finds us, doesn't it? Rolls up on us when we're weak, tries to drag us into the alley and steal our lunch money. What's our recourse when we get jumped? Not if, when. When we get jumped. What's our move? What's our play? What's our plan? What did Achan do? Let's find out. We'll do the opposite. Verb number three, Achan 
took. He saw, he coveted, he grabbed. Okay, let's not do that. How do we keep from doing that? How do we keep from grabbing on temptation? When we weren't looking for it, trying to avoid it, it find us anyway, grab something else. It's hard to grab temptation if our hands are already full. Temptation jumps us. Ah! Grab something to fill the space that temptation is seeking to occupy. I corrupted my wife. 30 years ago, I had the sweet tooth. She was the one with salt cravings. 30 years later, she has salt cravings and a sweet tooth. And it's my fault. But see, she has a workaround. She carries Tic Tacs, the fruity ones. Two calories. Cookies come by and jump her. She pops a Tic Tac. I don't need the cookie. I got my sweet. I'm good. That would not work for me. I would eat the Tic Tac. I would eat the rest of the Tic Tacs, and then I'd go back for the cookie. But it works for her. What's good is what works. What works for you? What works for you when temptation jumps you from behind? What keeps you from giving up, giving in? Keep in mind, it's got to be something that will not just fill your hands, but your heart, your mind, and quickly. For some people, it's a photo of their family. Keep it as wallpaper in your phone. Temptation. Okay, here's a reason. It's not the only reason. It's not even the best reason, but here's a reason to not go down that road. And I'm going to pray for my family right now, that I'd be the husband and the father that they deserve. For some people, it's a song. A song that reminds you of Jesus, of who he is, of what he's meant to you, of the death that he died for you. Pull up the song on Spotify. Pull up the song on, on, on your playlist. For some people, it's a psalm or a verse that anchors you in your identity in Christ. For some people, it's a person that they can call. Hey, pray for me. I can't, I can't, I can't pray right now. I'm too messed up. I can't even read the Bible right now. It's just marks on a page. Will you pray for me? Will you read scripture over me? What will work for you? Decide now. Plan now before you need to hit that big red button. The time to, the time to pack your parachute is before the plane is falling out of the sky. What will help you quickly, easily, convincingly, compellingly remember Jesus? What will help you occupy your heart and mind with him? Here's what doesn't work. What doesn't work is staring at the temptation. Not going to give in, 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 not going to That's like telling yourself not to think of pink elephants. Don't think of pink elephants. What have I just guaranteed? You're not going to hear anything I say for the next two minutes because you're going to be too busy visualizing pink elephants. We can't tell ourselves not to think of something. We have to substitute something. We have to think of something instead. Don't think about a pink elephant. Think about a white lion. Think about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Meditate on him. Because if we tell ourselves, I'm going to sin less, I'm going to sin less, I'm not going to sin that sin, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to. All I'm doing is reminding myself of the sin. All I'm doing is, is inviting temptation. All I'm doing is dancing with the question, am I sure? Not even a little bit? It wouldn't be okay? The key is not sinning less, it's loving God more. Love God more, sinning less takes care of itself. The way to not grab sin when it comes around and presents itself to us, to not take it into our hands, to not clutch it to our bosom, is to have something already there or something we can easily put there. Worship, prayer, praise, people that will get us back to Jesus. Finally, last thing that Achan did, which makes it the last thing we shouldn't do if we're trying to not be like him. Achan hid thing that gets me every time I read this story, Achan didn't enjoy his sin. He, he steps over a really bright line that God had drawn. He steals, he loots, and then he digs a hole and covers all of the gold and the clothes and the silver with dirt. Probably caused him to sin more, stressing about people are going to find out. What do I tell? What do I, what, where do I go with this? Well, I should go to God. No, I can't because of the, of the sin. That's us most of the time. Jesus has ruined sin for us. 
It's never going to satisfy us. It never, spoiler alert, it was never going to. But now we know it won't. We watch it not. Because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Sin can't satisfy us, but what it can do is paralyze us. I can't stop, but I can't keep going. I can't tell anyone, but the secret's eating me alive. So we freeze, we hide, we cover up, we hunker down. Except over time, the guilt and the shame get overwhelming, and the only way to deal with the shame and the guilt is more sin to deaden ourselves to it, to escape it, until we don't even feel conviction. Sin doesn't feel like sin anymore, but God doesn't feel close anymore either. And you can't remember the last time that you heard his voice or sensed his presence. How do we break the cycle? What outlet does the Bible give us? Confession. If we confess our sin, what? He's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The things we should have known, the things we should have learned, the things that we did again, yes, there's grace and forgiveness for those too. What's really helpful is to have someone in your life that you can talk to about your stuff who will remind you of that. Pick someone, covenant with someone. Let's do this for each other. You tell me when you stumble, I'll tell you when I stumble. You tell me when you come close to the line, I'll tell you when I have a near miss. Not for the purpose of beating each other up and also not for the purpose of absolving each other. We don't have that kind of power. But for the purpose of going to school, hey, let's learn. What was the trigger? What was the thing before the thing? What do we know now about temptation? What do we know now about your, your, how satisfied you were or weren't in God at that moment? How can we remind each other about God's faithfulness and forgiveness? How can we be praying for each other? Great accountability relationships actually have two elements. They have a situational element and they have a, a, a temporal element. Situational triggered by an event. Something happened, I got to tell you about this. Because you're the person that I tell everything. Something happened and, and, and I got to tell you. That's situational. The other one is temporal, time, calendar, weekly. Every week, 10 days, two weeks at the very most. Let's get together and let's talk about anything we haven't talked about yet. The thing that we forgot to talk about, the thing that we rationalized that we didn't need to talk about, the thing that was just too hard because the telephone weighed like 20,000 pounds. So that you keep short accounts. So that you don't go more than a week, two weeks at the most without realigning, restarting, rebooting, reviving, restoring relationship with God. Don't do that. And whatever came to your mind when I said don't do that, that is the that that you should not do. I think the last two and a half years have conspired to convince us our lives are out of control. There's a virus that tells us what we can and can't do, where we can and can't go. Government's lying to us. No, the news is lying to us. The government is lying about the news lying. The news is lying about the government lying. Other governments are coming for us. And no matter what we do, politics is dividing us. No matter what we do to try to love people, someone is going to say, no, you're hating me. <laughs> and so we decide to comfort ourselves. Let's sin in just a little. Or we don't decide it just happens, but we decide maybe it's okay that it happened. Maybe I'll let it happen again. Tolerate it just a bit. Compromise that much. Except pretty soon that feels out of control too. And why shouldn't it be? Everything else is, so I will be too. <laughs> Except it's not okay. And it's not out of control. Listen, sin shall not have dominion over you. Verse 14. Shall not. Need not. Doesn't have to. In Christ, we have mastery over sin. We just have to decide to use it. We just have to decide to flex on it. We're going to celebrate communion. The remembrance that Jesus gave us to keep the cross in front of us. Periodic observation so we wouldn't go too long without being reminded of his death and without being reminded of our death with him. We're crucified with Christ. What do you want that to look like this week as we wrap up? 
What would it look like if we, if we listened to Paul, if we heeded God's word, reckoned ourselves dead to sin, decided to be, chose to be, took steps to help us be? What do you need to decide that you're not going to look at? Listen to, touch, taste. What rooms do you need to stay out of? What do you need to not bring into rooms with you? What people, places, events do you need to avoid? What will you grab if you get ambushed? A psalm, a song, a scripture, a prayer, a person. How are you going to get your hearts and minds filled if sin sneaks up behind you and tries to drag you down? Who are you going to covenant with? Who's the person who's going to know everything and who's going to tell you every time that grace is enough and that Jesus is better? And finally, most importantly, what do you need to do to be renewed and revived and satisfied in Christ daily, more than daily? Can we practice it right now? Jesus, our lives are yours. You purchased them at the cross. Forgive us for taking control back for wanting it, for believing that we could live better lives than the lives that you've planned for us. That we can manage the highs and lows of life, the stress, the pain, the loss, the disappointment, the elation better than your spirit. Jesus, would you remind us who we are in you? Speak to us about our identity. Remind us that in you is fullness of joy. In you and only in you we find our peace, our purpose. In you is true power for living. Strip away the world. During these next minutes, deafen our ears to sin's siren song. Remind us of your love.